still a really young field. And yeah, you got to stand on the shoulders of giants and, and recognize the work that's been done before you. But, um, you know, the shark research as we know it has really only existed for, you know, probably 60, 70 years and, and maybe only 40 years in a meaningful way. Um, certainly the early stuff was important. But uh, it is now that we're excited about deep sea and we have some of the tools and technologies now, which I hope we talk about a little bit on today's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Sea Has Many Voices, an ocean podcast. Today on season four, episode two, our guest is Austin Gallagher, founder and CEO of Beneath the Waves, marine biologist and social entrepreneur. Welcome to this week's show, The Sea Has Many Voices, and I'm really pleased to have Dr. Austin Gallagher with me. Hey, Austin. Hey, how's it going, Greg? Good to be here. It's good. It's good. Thanks for making the time. Be a good thing to start the show off with, actually, that question you had. Yeah, I mean, we see these fires happening right now in Northern California and in California in general, and I was just asking you, how much of this, you know, these orange skies that we see, how much of this is attributable to climate? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it is. Even without climate, we would have fires, but... With climate, we have more of them, and they're more intense, and they're longer. It's like, uh, you know, the way I describe it to people, because I get a lot of people asking me, how could we be having global warming when there's snow in Washington, D.C., and when there's, like, this and that? You have to explain that it's really about we're over-energizing the system, right, with, with sunlight and energy. And when you over-energize any system, you end up with chaos, and that's what we're getting is chaos. Now it's expressing itself somewhere, some places it's warmer, some places it's colder, but overall it's definitely getting warmer. And me, Greg Stone, as a scientist, I think that it is attributable to it, just like the storms in the Atlantic. There was that MIT professor that did the work on hurricanes. He looked at the data and he said, well, you know, I suppose it's possible it's within the normal variation, but it looks like we have more intense storms and I think he found a higher frequency as well, but it's a hard thing to convince the general public about. Although at the same time, I feel that science has hit a pinnacle over the last century in that we have convinced the world through the UNFCCC and other bodies that there's this odorless, colorless gas out here, CO2, that's causing a problem. Now, the fact that you can't see it, smell it, but people actually believe that it's there, I think, on the other hand, is a testament to what we've done. You know, it's, it's quite, quite amazing. So uh, it drives a lot of what I do now, Austin. I, uh, you and I have, have a shared history at the good old New England Aquarium, which I am always fond of to think of. Yeah. But now my work is I'm just overburdened with climate. You know, as I've started my, my own foundation, it's pretty much focused on um, Pacific Island climate issues and people, especially the impacts on people. And I did a calculation the other day. I'd be interested, maybe you could back me up on this and do one yourself. But I went back in the geological record and I, I just looked at the increase in temperature when we came into the Jurassic and the increase in temperature now. And from what I can tell, it's about four to 5,000 times faster now than it was when we made that last big leap. Because if you look back over the swings, we're actually kind of headed back towards the Jurassic, wow. yeah. <laughs> which is Bahamas everywhere kind of climate. 
Yeah. Um, but no, I don't think anybody's bothered to actually do the calculus on it or the math. I just made an estimation, but I think it's about the rate of change now. It's not the, it's not the change, it's the rate of change. It's, it's just happening so rapidly. It scares the hell out of me. You know, it really does. I've been uh, doing a lot of thinking too about, I look at indigenous social systems and indigenous practices. And these, I believe, have evolved. You could, you, you could use Darwinian evolutionary theory to say that the ones that are here today are the ones that survived because they gave the communities the right kind of advice. Like the seven generation rule of the Iroquois nation is one often quoted, but there's many others where there were these principles that indigenous communities came up with that did not have anything to do with political cycles, did not have anything to do with a free market economy. It had to do with the long-term survival of the people. The Iroquois nation, just for listeners that don't know, was a constitution that the Iroquois Indians in America had pre-contact with Europeans, which the elders, whenever they made a decision that would affect the whole community, it had to be good for at least seven generations. Wouldn't that be great to see it written into UN conventions that any decision that's made has to be good for seven generations instead of just the next couple of years, which is kind of where we're still at. So I, I struggle a lot with this stuff, but this is more, I want to find out, I want your listeners to find out, and I want to find out more about what you're doing. We can, we can wander back to this kind of stuff throughout, because I've held back asking you too much during our calls, because I knew we were going to do the podcast someday. And <laughs> so give me, tell me about your, yourself and tell the listeners, because everybody loves it. Everybody loves a shark guy. Okay. You're going to be really popular. <laughs> Happy to assume that role and really grateful to be on the podcast today. Thanks, Greg. Just a quick note to your earlier point is, yeah, we as a species are not that good at long-term planning as it relates to our planet. We're good at long-term planning 401ks and finances and money, but we're not good at long-term planning for our planet. So we need a paradigm shift because we won't be able to make money if we don't have a planet. I think that's what it really just comes down to. So to answer your question, yeah, my name is Dr. Austin Gallagher. I am a marine biologist and I am the CEO and uh, chief scientist at a globally activated marine conservation NGO called Beneath the Waves. We really function as a nonprofit research institute that is doing cutting edge science all around the world, but mainly focusing on the Atlantic Ocean, the Caribbean Sea, and working on top predators like sharks. They are, you know, one of the most enigmatic, but continue to be highly threatened group of animals. I've been here longer than virtually any other species that has a backbone on our planet, millions of years, predating the Jurassic era, to your point earlier. And we're really focused, laser focused on trying to do the science that's needed to impact things like marine protected areas. And we, we really know that we have good ability to affect that change working in places like the Caribbean where you know, these countries rely on tourism and healthy reefs and you know, still political hurdles to juggle there. But you, know, you can really get access to decision makers and get in the rooms with people there, which is good. So we're doing a lot of research all over and things are you know, interesting times right now during COVID, but we're grateful to have a, you know, a wonderful team supports us and good network of donors and supporters. And I really believe that what we've begun to do over the last three or four years is really create the next gen ocean NGO that is 
highly disruptive, but also highly impactful and really flipping the switch in terms of, you know, how to run these organizations moving forward. Thank you. Thank you for that intro. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the sharks and the fact that they did transform the dinosaurs and the, the mass extinction that occurred. With, was that the K2 boundary, they call it? The, That's we think that the dinosaurs in. How did the sharks escape that? How did they not perish? Sure. Well, some of them did, for sure. There are some species, you know, and I'll have to caution how, how confidently I talk about this because I'm, I'm definitely not a paleontologist or an evolutionary biologist. However, some species didn't make it. Some species did. A lot of the weirder species that we see in the fossil record that were, you know, very divergent in terms of their morphology and having weird shapes on their head, they're obviously gone. I don't think they survived that one. Specialization, right? It always comes back to the concept of if you're unique, you know, you don't tend to make it in nature when there's a big change. But a lot of species did go deep. And, you know, a lot of the species that are some of the oldest ones phylogenetically, you know, meaning the, the oldest ones on our planet today, really basic looking sharks. There's a a group of sharks called the cow sharks. Hexancaformes is the scientific term for that that group. They don't even have a dorsal fin. You know, they're basically just long tubular sharks. They have six or seven gills, which is different. Most sharks that we know, and the majority of the 500 or so species have five gills. Uh, These ones have six or seven. And what they do is they live in our deep oceans primarily. You know, they live in an area that you and I talk about all the time, the final frontier. It's funny how now there's a lot more interest placed on our deep oceans in terms of governance and conservation. And, and what are we going to do with this largest ecosystem on our planet? So what's a cow shark? I'm not actually familiar with that term. Does that include six gills and those yeah. guys? Yep. So six gills, seven gills. I think there's probably seven or eight species in that family. Yeah, they're called cow sharks because they sort of have a really round, blunt kind of face that I think looks like a cow. And they don't have a dorsal fin and they live in our deep oceans. So, you know, if we think about where these animals went when all these, you know, cataclysmic extinctions, they went deep. And that's where that they first went to. And then, you know, a lot of life for sharks came back up from the deep after that. And it's kind of interesting now that, you know, for the whole field of shark research, I think some of my contemporaries would maybe criticize me for saying this, and I have been criticized for saying stuff like this in the past, that, you know, this is still a really young field. And yeah, you got to stand on the shoulders of giants and recognize the work that's been done before you. But, you know, shark research as we know it has really only existed for probably 60, 70 years and maybe only 40 years in a meaningful way. Certainly the early stuff was important, but it is now that we're excited about deep sea and we have some of the tools and technologies now which I hope we talk about a little bit on today's episode, that can get down to these locations. And it's the cow sharks that are actually the ones that we're learning about, you know, at a higher rate now in these deep sea endemic species. That, uh, I love oceanographic history. It's one of my little pet areas of study. Can you give me the, uh, you said about 40 years. You know, as, as you know, we've talked about this before. I'm a fan of Jaws, the movie, and Peter eventually was a good friend of mine. And I know that at the time Peter wrote that book, all of his books were fiction based on fact, right? So he he found out everything he could about sharks in 1975, and he wrote Jaws. And if you go back and look at the facts alongside the book, it's actually pretty accurate to the knowledge of the day. Everything in it either happened or could have happened. 
but you said 40 years. I know a lot of shark biologists were inspired by that movie, and a lot of them were inspired by other things. But just give me a little more detail in the history of shark research. I find that fascinating that you said it was about 40 years. Yeah, yeah I'd say 40 years is when things have really started accelerating in terms of the production of knowledge. But there were, you know, some of the pioneers, people like Eugenie Clark, you know, Sonny Gruber, folks like that. And there are certainly some other folks that I'm, I'm not mentioning now, but they were really getting stuff going in the, you know, the 60s and the 70s. You know, there was a few people starting to do stuff, pretty rudimentary. I don't want to use the word crude, but rudimentary behavioral studies, you know, a couple sharks in a pen, place like Moat Marine Lab in Florida, I think was, you know, one of the, you know, real breeding grounds for a lot of that early work you know, basic science. At that point, there was no real understanding of the sensitivities these species had to things like overfishing. And, and industrial overfishing was nowhere nearly as widespread as it is today. So it was a lot more basic things, just trying to understand how these animals work. What's their behavior like? Can they learn? You know, what's their blood look like? What's their physiology look like? So that was a lot of the foundational stuff. And then to your point about jaws, I don't know if it's ever been tested scientifically, but there was definitely a an uptick in interest in research in sharks, you know, coming out of the late 70s and 80s. And I think there was, you know, a lot of more people going into that field. And, you know, by the late 80s, early 90s, there was a pretty emergent growing field of shark research. And it's only, you know, increased exponentially since then. Well, I wanted to be Matt Hooper. That was the impact the movie had on me. <laughs> but I didn't become a shark guy. I did know, you know, I knew Eugenie Clark pretty well. Did you ever meet her? Yeah, I met her at conferences, you know, towards the you know, her you know, last few years. You know, she's a really nice, nice woman and pretty incredible what she did also as a woman. You know, yeah, For our listeners, she was like way ahead of her time. She went to Palau, I think, in the 40s or 50s. And... She wrote a book called A Lady and a Spear, I think it was called. And it was a kind of a landmark book about a woman who was studying sharks. Again, she was, in terms of diversity, she was way ahead of her time, but she also was active right up to the end. She died I think when she was like 90 years old. Yeah, I think she died four or five years ago, something like that. And she came out to Bermuda with me a few times. My great mentor, I always like to bring him into the room whenever I can he's passed away now too, was Teddy Tucker, great Bermudian diver and a friend of Jeannie's. In fact, he introduced me to her. He started putting hooks down into the deep sea around Bermuda in the 1970s and 80s and picked, pulling up these sharks that no one had ever seen before. And he called Eugenie up and he said, I got this shark with these characteristics. And she said, it's impossible. They don't exist. And he said, well, come on down and have a look. And she came down, and sure enough, he was finding new species for the region, but also a couple of new species in general. And she then came to Bermuda with a submarine and did some of the early work on uh, deep-sea sharks there in the late 70s and early 80s, baiting them in with bait, which I've done as well. And tell, tell us how you do your, your research, because that's really interesting. You're a real pioneer in this area. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, I use a different, a variety of different tools and approaches. Personally, I love the concept of innovation and I like trying to be an early adopter of new technologies. It's not easy, you know, of course, you try to sometimes fit something in and it doesn't work out, but it's exciting when you do try something new for the first time because then other people can use it and you might make a process easier or cheaper or more exciting. And you might discover some really cool stuff. So 
you know, depending on the questions or the projects that we're engaged in, you know, we have different tools for that. You know, one of the ways that we study sharks and trying to look at their behavior and home range and which habitats are most important for their survival, we use what we call shark tagging, you know, and that involves many times, not all the time, but it does often involve, you know, encountering, capturing, tagging the animals with pretty cool biological sensors and satellite tags. And these are very widespread tools now that hundreds of thousands of people are using around the world to study these animals. But we also, you know, embrace more non-invasive approaches. I should add that shark tagging can be done in a minimally invasive way. It's something we do do, you know, like yeah, yeah. water and stuff like that. You know, we care about them. But there's also a bunch of non-invasive approaches that involve deep sea cameras and environmental DNA and biosensors. And there are quantum leaps happening in the field of genomics and metabarcoding and, and all these molecular techniques that are just scorching in terms of, you know, things going faster and quicker and easier. Where I'm most excited about, you know, to answer your question, Greg, is for sure, new innovative things that are cheaper and could go deeper. So we have these amazing underwater drop camera systems that I've been collaborating on with scientists named Brennan Phillips from the University of Rhode Island, who is a deep sea imaging expert and engineer trained under Bob Ballard. So he's definitely got some amazing chops. And, you know, we've created these tools that can go down to very, very deep oceans, you know, thousands of meters deep and capture, you know, high definition video of animals that have often never been seen before. And for a fraction of the cost of going out on, you know, long-term oceanographic cruises, which are amazing by the way, and, and super valuable, but it's really trying to bring in, I mean, the deep sea and our oceans are huge. So we can't do these, you know, expensive long range cruises all the time and furthermore, to your point about developing countries and working with indigenous cultures, they need access, you know, and they should have a role in the production of science, by the way, too. And they're not going to be able to get on a, you know, million, multi-million dollar a year cruise. So we need to find ways to, to bridge that gap. You know, you mentioned tagging. I want to tell you a little story and get your reaction to it. I live right here on the coast of California, pointing at the ocean because it's right there. And I've been doing some... Uh, drone surveys of the surface biology of the area, and I mentioned this to you separately, but I, one day I was astounded to find uh, five juvenile great white sharks swimming within a stone's throw of the, of the coastline, and they were all uh, headed, I live in Pacific Palisades, they were headed to Santa Monica Beach on a Sunday afternoon that was full of people. Now, you and I both know that inherently great white sharks are not out hunting for people. You know, that's uh, usually uh, a mistake when they bite someone. It's, they think it's something else. And as soon as they bite it, they usually spit it out and move on. And if the person dies, it's usually from bleeding, not from being gobbled up. I like to say it's like if you reach down and find something that's round and bite it thinking it's an apple and then it's an onion, you go, ooh, and you drop it. It's probably the same for them when they bite into us. But I, I felt an obligation to call the... the uh, lifeguard people. So I called the lifeguard station down at Santa Monica and it took a while to get up to somebody that listened to me. They thought I was some whacked out tourist at first. And I finally found somebody that realized I knew what I was talking about. And he said, oh, okay, where are you? I told him and he said, well, what are they doing? And I told him and he said, okay, you see that red? He asked me if I saw the red buoy out there. And I said, yeah, I had seen this red buoy and I always kind of wondered what it was. And it was a hydrophone. And he said, we have much of these sharks tagged. 
with high frequency tags and that's how we monitor them near the beach for safety purposes and he said but we don't hear any right now and you say they're where they're there so he said i'm going to close the beach and based on my sighting now i got a couple questions for you there are those the same kind of tags you use how do they work what's their range and then b what are the ethics of of a town having a beach monitoring for sharks knowing that it's a great white shark nursery and not really telling anybody <laughs> yeah that's those are really great questions and uh, i'm happy to unpack all of them so amazing that you got that encounter and yeah i, I shared it with you you saw it so you know what i'm talking yeah, about yeah it's great and yeah there's some good music on that too so maybe you can uh, link to oh it. yeah yeah we'll, we'll, we'll run it on this program yeah yeah the fact that you're able to throw up your drone you know, right from your house and see five young, healthy white sharks out there, you know, looking for food, benthic animals like skates and, and various fishes. That's a pretty incredible thing, by the way. We were not able to, that didn't happen 10 years ago. You know, certainly didn't happen 20 years ago. So that's a sign of a, of a healthy and recovering population. And white sharks are the most protected, most publicized shark in the world. So they're doing just fine, by the way. On both coasts, research has suggested that their populations are recovering, and, and that's you know a good thing. And it shows you that when you protect animals from fishing, yeah. they can recover. Okay, well, that's what I thought, but I wanted to ask an expert like you, because people ask me about this, and I say, well, we've been protecting them about 10, 10 years or so now, uh, domestically here in the U.S., and here's the result, right? I mean, yeah. it's kind of, yeah. Okay. Yeah, even closer to, I think, 1996 or 97. So, yeah, 15 years almost. Okay. A long time. And it basically covers, you know, one or two generations of, of population rebuilding for them. So it's a good thing. The type of tags that those sharks are being, you know, tracked with, and that's, you know, most likely by a researcher down at Cal State Long Beach, uh, Dr. Chris Lowe, you know, does good work on, on the white sharks down there. That is an acoustic telemetry tag. So it sends out a, like you said, high frequency ping, 69 kilohertz, not audible by the human ear. You know, it's too high pitched. Sharks can't hear it either, by the way. Sharks have really, they're adapted for low. What, what is the frequency it uses? Sorry, do you know what it uses? 69 kilohertz. 69, okay. So it's not audible by the human ear. Dolphins can hear it. The dolphins can certainly hear that, yep. So basically we put these tags either on the animals those white sharks, I believe, are tagged via pole spear from a boat. I'm not 100% sure, but the tags can also be surgically implanted. We use them all the time. These types of tags are really good for understanding the coastal habitat used to sharks. So up and down a coast or on a place like Kiribati, you know, your background there, an island in the Caribbean, which is where we use them. Basically, those tags ping about every minute or two with a, you know, an ID that is decoded by a receiver. So the only way this technology works is that you actually need to put these receivers out that are listening at that same frequency, okay, the same manufacturer that makes the tags, makes the receivers, and you screw them into the substrate, you dive, you put them down, you sink them, you can put them deep, you can put them shallow, you can cover the whole, you know, west coast of the United States. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. A lot of people use them to track fish, not just sharks. And anytime a shark swims within you know, a certain range of those receivers, that detection will be picked up by the receiver and stored. And then later on, we go down and we dive the receiver. What's the range? What's the, how far can that 69 kilohertz go? I kind of know from dolphin work, but what do you 
guys estimate? Range, sure, yeah, sure. The range of the detection for those receivers and tags, it depends on the habitat they're in. It depends on the depth, quarry versus sand. You know, open areas are going to have much bigger detection range because the acoustic signals won't be bouncing off things like rocks and there won't be a lot of, you know, acoustic interference. But in general, a safe number is anywhere between three and 500 meters. So, you know, you can get you can get a quarter to a half mile, which is actually pretty incredible if you think about it. Basically, what we do is to just close the loop on the acoustic stuff is we go down and we recover the receivers, we download the data, and then we map it all out, and we can understand where these animals are going and doing. It's pretty amazing. And there is an important you know, human element of this, too, to your last question in that piece there, ethics and, and safety. And... Well, we certainly need to realize as a society and as a species that if we're going to be protecting and conserving these large sharks, then we absolutely need to become comfortable with the fact that there are going to be more of them. Yeah. It's funny how sometimes people will donate to these programs and they, they love the shark and they love Shark Week. And then all of a sudden they're saying, well, I can't go in the water. What the heck? There's sharks there. Yeah. Get rid of the sharks. And it's like, well, you, we all wanted this. <laughs> so it really comes back to this point of coexistence with our planet which is the most important question of our time, right? How do we coexist yeah. with the planet? You know, I'm surprised that they didn't know earlier that those sharks were swimming around, so it's good you helped them with that observation. I'm sure they're tuned into it, and there are some real-time, you know, real-time detection tools like drones, and there's real-time acoustic receivers. Helicopters. Uh, helicopters. Place where I've do a lot of work and where I'm from, which is New England, Cape Cod area. You know, but my organization's been doing work up there for the last three or four years. Not on white sharks per se, but just large animals and just taking more of an ecosystem-based approach to you know, New England and Stellwagen Bank, which is a pretty amazing area. There are white sharks there too. A growing population of white sharks, and there have been some, there's been a fatality in the last three or four years, you know, from a bite. There have been a few bites, nothing this year, thankfully, but... Um, yeah, well, there was a lady in Maine. That's right. There was a lady in Maine who was fatally, you know, bitten. You know, I hate to use the word attack, but what else can you really use? I heard, I heard she was bitten in half. I heard it was pretty, pretty gruesome. Yeah, I was yeah. actually, yeah. I have good friends right in where that happened in Casco Bay. And I was there probably two weeks, two, three weeks after it happened. And we went right over to where it happened just to look at it. And idyllic little, you know, set of islands in coastal Maine, you know, Stephen King type novel stuff. And you would never have guessed it, but. The ocean's changing. That's the biggest thing that people need to realize. It's not a static thing. It's always changing. The weather is changing dramatically. Somebody caught a white marlin off of Provincetown Beach on Cape Cod a couple of days ago. I mean, that's like unheard of. There was a lot of criticism. Peter used to get a lot of criticism about Jaws and the fact that he created this hatred and that people killed a lot. Do you think people killed a lot of sharks after Jaws and shark tournaments? And did that depress the population? Because... You know, when I was in school and studying and all that in the Gulf of Maine in the 70s and the 80s, you know, we never saw a great white shark. We'd see a poor beagle once in a while way down East Maine, which I gather is a smaller relative of the, of the great white. Do you think that, did Jaws have an impact on the populations, the movie? Were there more tournaments? I remember tournaments. I remember going to shark tournaments where they come in with all these dead sharks and everybody said, let's go to Jaws. Or was it just commercial fishing that, that knocked their numbers down now they've come back, or maybe you don't know. Sharks generally, it's not a black and white answer. In general for sharks, commercial fishing is definitely what's been crushing them. White sharks are, you know, have certainly been 
persecuted by commercial fisheries over the years, but they're actually very coastal species. You know, they, they yeah. tend to be very close to shore. We know that now from, you know, decades of tracking that the groups have done. So that's really recreational fishing. That's the main threat to those guys, I would say. And no doubt about it, after Jaws, there was a big, you know, uptick, big surge in interest in seeing these animals. And the only way that people could see them then was fishing. There was no shark diving, you know, that wasn't really a thing. Right huge now, but nobody went out and did that. Nobody knew how to do that. You know, there were certainly people who were doing it in Australia, Valerie Taylor and these types of people, but had not made its way to the United States yet. So people went out fishing for them. Gulf of Maine, there were definitely white sharks there. I think they're radiating and moving their distribution up there now for various reasons. But the main area for a lot of the white shark activity, Greg, was, you know, off of Montauk and south of the Vineyard and south of Nantucket you know, in the, that mid-Atlantic northern kind of area, which is warming at a very increasing rate, faster than any other body of water on our planet, I think. That's interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah. Of that because I get asked a lot of questions and I don't, I don't know the answers to sharks. Yeah. I can tell you one thing, though, is that from what I've seen here in Santa Monica, I will not go swimming out here. People have a, they swim out about a half a kilometer and then they swim in these groups, these long distance swims. And I just don't think it would be safe to do that in the early evening, for example. I just don't think it's safe personally. And I've, and I, you know, I've spent a lot of time underwater. I've spent a lot of time with sharks during the day. I've spent time with them at night. I've fed them. I've not fed them. I mean, I, I kind of, if I'm diving with sharks, I'm sort of on oh, yeah. thinking about it and I know what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm not going to go recreationally crawling, doing the crawl for two kilometers, you know, a, a half a kilometer offshore here. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's just not safe. I did a, di- a commercial shark dive to see what it was like about 15 years ago in Fiji. And what they did there, Austin, is they took you down to 90 feet and they had a coral wall that they had built up with boulders and the tourists had to sit on one side of it and the dive master on the other and he had a big 55-gallon drum full of frozen fish and he kept pulling it out and he was drawing in, he draw in bull sharks, tiger sharks, gray reef sharks, and I think some others at the time. And we had two or three species came in, and they were so lax today, they didn't even want to eat the fish. He was like trying to force it into their mouths, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't eat it. They don't go into a frenzy, you know, as soon as there's like something in the water necessarily, like people. Can you give us your take on it? I'll ask you the question I get asked all the time. Is it safe to go in the water? And what are the species you need to be worried about as a human being? And I loved your point earlier about, you know, we are now coexisting with the ocean. We like to say on this show that the oceans and humanity share the same fate. And so therefore we're concerned about the ocean because our future is tied to it. And I also believe, and we could talk about this on another show sometime, that we need to redefine what wilderness is. I mean, I think wilderness now includes us. You know, we've, we've moved around the planet as we were designed to do, and it's not unnatural to have us here where we are. We just have to get it into our heads that we're now part of the coastal ocean ecosystem because we live there, and then we're part of the larger system because we use it, and we have to get the balance right. So I've thrown a lot at you there, you know, so reactions of any kind whatsoever. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I mean, things are definitely changing, Greg, for sure. I think that I've spent a lot of time with sharks underwater. I've experienced them in a variety of different situations all over the world. 
you know, lots of different species, not all of them, but a couple dozen probably. And for the most part, I've had very safe encounters. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about tagging them, but specifically being in the water with them. For the most part, I've had very safe encounters. There have definitely been a few that have gotten me out of the water or sketched me out. I'll say, I'll just preface it by saying, I don't think sharks are, people are diving with sharks a lot now commercially. And I think it's a great thing. I've actually done a decent amount of research in that domain and published some work on it. And in some countries, it's a huge argument for their conservation, places like Palau, Bahamas. Socioeconomically, they can be very valuable animals, alive versus dead. Much more valuable, I should say. But because of that, people have sort of, and the frequency of you know bites or attacks relative to the amount of people that are in the water with them every year, every day is so, so, so low. It's so rare that what it's done is almost kind of created this cognitive bias that these animals are Disney characters. And that, you know, we can feed them and we can do all these things. And I love diving sharks, by the way. Don't get me wrong. But they're not Disney characters. They're not. And they are dangerous. I do think it's relatively safe to get into the water with them. If you're smart, you're with the right operator, you can do it safely under the right conditions. You also need to know that they are dangerous animals. And it's mainly because that they have the, you know, ability to change their behavior very quickly. And they have really sharp teeth that are designed for slicing through flesh. I know that personally. So they don't want to eat us. Your hand has a shark bite. From yeah, I, mean, I was recently. Accidentally, you were doing a procedure part of your science. Yeah. yeah, so look at that, everybody. You've got to be careful. Even professionals can um, have yeah. a problem. Yeah. I, mean, I was tagging a shark and taking the hook yeah. out, and you know, yeah. I probably just you know, didn't look quickly enough, and it just bit my finger. But it still ruptured my tendon. I had to get surgery yeah. on it. And this is a five-foot reef shark, by the way. So... I've always known that they have the potential to do that, but I even have even more respect for them now. And I would say that, you know, you just got to be careful with them and they don't want to eat us. They don't. We didn't evolve with them. So they don't know what we are when they're in the water with us. And one thing that's pretty cool that I'll share with all the the viewers and listeners is it's really, and you probably know this too, is that interacting with these animals underwater, it's, it's a dance and it's, they're predators. So they are largely visual predators, especially the big ones. So if you can be making eye contact with them and asserting yourself through, you know, paying attention, they will back off and they yeah. won't come in because they make a living by ambushing dumb animals, dumb fish and, and species that aren't looking. So you made a great point about they did not evolve with us. I mean, hominids have been around for 6 million years. Hominids are anything that walks around on two feet. And our species has been around for only 200,000 years or so. So you're right. Sharks have been around for hundreds of millions of years without us. So we're, we're like a flash in the pan. Yeah. Totally. I think if you look at something like a wolf, I love wolves. And they're amazing, incredible predators. You know, the most classic example of the importance of top predators, I would say, you know, based on all the work that's been done in places like Yellowstone, which I'm actually going to in a couple of weeks for the first time, which I'm really pumped about. They will actually hunt people like they will, you know, if they're hungry and they encounter someone out there, they have a pack, they will take down people. It's well, wolves will. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. Cause I saw a movie about that recently called uh, Grays. Yeah. Okay. Yep. They definitely will. I mean, again, it's not one of those things that you need to be fearful of and not go out because of, but they're dogs, you know, they're smart animals and they, they know what we are and diff- much more different than sharks, which are fish and I'm not trying to under, understate their significance but these are really primitive animals and that's why i actually love sharks so much is because they're so elemental in 
in the way that they work and behave. Wow, you've really opened my eyes to a couple of really key points there about that evolutionary piece. Are great white sharks a direct descendant of megalodons? I believe so. I can't speak 100% intelligently there. Certainly related. Megalodon doesn't exist anymore. It's gone extinct. So I think that there probably could be a case that they they were related, yes. But I can't say with 100% certainty. I have a megalodon tooth here. Awesome. There's quite a few around on the planet. Does that mean that there was a lot of megalodons around? Because they went extinct three million years ago. And you can still find it. I think a lot of the ones that we're seeing are probably casts or replicas that are pushed off as real ones. Yeah. I'd love to know how many there actually are out there, but you got to remember these animals can serially replace their teeth. That's the thing is, I mean, they can have 20,000 teeth in their lifetime. So that's a lot. And they naturally shed them all the time. Naturally. We have about five or 10 minutes left here and I'm going to definitely have you back in the show. But before we go, can you give a rundown of, I know this this is old hat to you, but it's what people want to know. What are the sharks that people need to be concerned with? I mean, yeah. you and I love sharks. They show they're indicators of a healthy ecosystem and all that. But at the same time, when we enter their world, we have to play by their rules and there are some dangers involved. And which ones do you think of as be careful of? Are yeah. They- I put them into two categories. First category would be Species that have the potential to, and I'm not trying to be a fear monger here, but no, you, that's just the truth. Yeah. Species try, try that, the truth. See how that works. Exactly. <laughs> species that have the potential to inflict like fatal damage based on their teeth. There's three white sharks, bull sharks, and tiger sharks. I would say the three that have the, the sharpest teeth that if you get bitten by them, you might bleed out if you get bitten in the wrong place. And white sharks are kind of in their own different category there because they eat mammals as they get bigger they get better at hunting seals and things like that. So we are also mammals as people. So, but you can view, you can swim with your white sharks from the safety of a cage. I wouldn't say swim, but you can view them from a cage and that's done all the time, which is great. I've spent a lot of time with tiger sharks underwater. They're actually very safe to dive with, but they have, like I said, the machinery to do major damage. They're very, very patient animals, sharks in general, but tiger sharks in particular, extremely visual predators. So if you make eye contact with the tiger, you're probably going to be okay, which is good. Bull sharks are the ones that I'm the most sketched out by because I've had a couple sketchy situations with them. Bad vision, not good, you know, very competitive underwater. Mm -hmm. And you just really heavy, a heavy shark when there's a lot of them underwater. So I don't really love bull sharks for that reason. And then the second category I would just say is behaviorally. And I hate to say it, but reef sharks, which are, you know, they don't get a lot of respect like those charismatic ones, but reef sharks are found everywhere. And, you know, we like to think of them as just background noise. The truth is, is, you know, they're not top predators oftentimes. The tiger sharks are the top predators. So they're very competitive. They live life in the fast lane. Any minute can be their last one, any second. And you know they're really, really, really sketchy sometimes, especially in big numbers. So yeah, you got to be careful with the reef sharks, even though okay. we kind of don't give them a lot of respect. What about oceanic white tip pointers? For sure. Those guys are amazing. I did a TED talk on an experience, TEDx talk. I had an experience with oceanic white tips that kind of changed my life for the better but it's because they're so bold. Oceanic white tips are... I'll tell you about it offline. I had an experience as well. Okay, so you put them in the category. Okay. All right. I put them in in kind of in between those two. Okay, thank you. That pretty much matches what I would say too. I like to cross-check things. 
And, um, you know, I want to say that uh, your organization, Beneath the Waves, will promote it on our website. And you are, in my view, a model of what we need more of in the world. So thank you for all the work that you do, Austin. And uh, you've, you've re-entered my life of the last year to my great joy and, and pleasure. We knew each other a little bit, like from afar, many, many, many years ago, but didn't really yeah. talk much. So awesome. it's nice having you back. We're going to do some trips together. One is going to be out to Hawaii. We're going to go stay with Kelly or Kelly Slater's home and do a retreat on some of these new forward-looking oceanographic techniques that you do and some other people I know do. And let's just keep it up. But And can I have you back on the show? Because I feel like today we did a nice shark segment, but we didn't get into the other things that I wanted to get Certainly. into. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here, Greg. You're the man. You know, you're a huge inspiration for a lot of us out here. And yeah, I'd love to come back on the show. And there's so many great things we can talk about. And Yes, uh, there are. If I can see you and I having a little sub-series, that's why I kind of want to keep this one pure as like our shark episode thing. So let's... Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Dr. Austin Gallagher, thank you so much. Thanks to all the donors of Pole to Pole for making this and other programs possible, including Aquarium of the Pacific, Wendy Benchley, The Bomb Foundation, Common Earth, Deep Green Metal, John Powell, Pete Reeve, and Edgar H. Shine.